We are born free, and we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty Network. And you are hearing this, or you should be hearing this, on New Year's Day or a little thereafter in 2024. So happy New Year's, happy holidays, happy all of that good stuff. Hopefully everyone had a great time celebrating with your family. Uh, My guest and I today will be speaking to you from the past recording this on December 20th. And uh, yeah, excited to introduce my guest. He's been on this show um, previously, and he was just on uh, a friend of our show, former colleague Mark Clare, just had him on. But the topic that we're going to talk about, the guest is Anthony Samerhoff. I'll introduce him in a minute. But we're going to be talking about pharmaceutical companies and uh, the corruption, the myths behind them, um, and, and some things like that. So Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. Before I do, I just want to remind everybody, if you like this show, if you like Brian's show on Wednesdays, if you like everything we do here at Lions of Liberty, please consider subscribing to Lions of Liberty on your favorite podcasting app. I'm assuming that's the one that you're listening to the show on. And also join the pride. Join our little uh, group that we have where we give you bonus content and discounts on merchandise and a little bit of community with other sane people. So we'd love to have you. You can do that by going to uh, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. And without any further delay, let's bring Anthony onto the show. Anthony Samerhoff is here to talk about, like I said, to talk about the issues, the problems, the misconceptions. Some might even call them myths um, surrounding pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Anthony is a psychotherapist he's he's an author he's a he's an interrupter interrupter yeah sorry (laughs) i think we've got a little bit of uh, lag going on that's what it is i was just going to say you said some might even call them myths some might call them outright lies and fraud which uh, pharmaceutical companies have been taken to court and found guilty of and then continue to perpetrate. But uh, please go on um, introducing <laughs> me. Uh, you were just getting good stuff. I yeah, love just, it when just, people just talk one, about one my last part. topic. Yep, not we're, we're here to discuss we're here to discuss Anthony's book, Seven Big Pharma Seven Big Pharma Myths Debunked. Anthony, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you. And by the way, people, you can get that booklet free from www.7, the number seven, Pharma Myths, M-Y-T-H-S, for those who don't get Scottish, dot com, sevenpharmamyths.com. Sorry, you were about to, you were about to say, say my bio when I, I rudely interrupted. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's no, uh, no concern at all. Just uh, some other things I will add. Um, as you can tell by the accent, Anthony is Scottish. Um, many he's many people's favorite Scottish libertarian. Personally, um, the only Scottish libertarian that I know and have met in person. So um, it's a little, maybe a little bit easier to be the favorite when you're the only one. But yeah, when there's so few of us, for my sins, I may be Scotland's most prominent libertarian. So. Um, I was I was just uh, appreciating your intro music and uh, the image that you have in the back for finding freedom with the with the fists breaking free of the chains and uh, hopefully we'll we'll break free of the chains of some myths today. But before I go on, like we we met in person in Pennsylvania um, a couple of years ago and that was very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a while since we've done a show, but I think we've done one or two together. I was just wondering if you find that you get treated differently since you started wearing a mustache. <laughs> that's a great question. And 
I, I'm not surprised that, that you would ask that because, uh, you know, knowing you and, and knowing how you study interactions between people. Um, and I don't know if it was on our show. I'll answer the question in a minute, but I don't, I don't know if it was on an interview or, or in person when we talked, but something really insightful that I took away from you, or maybe it's just a video you did that I watched where you talked about small talk and, um, you know, mm -hmm. using talking about the weather and things of that nature, you know, common things that are happening um, in order to, uh, you know, create small talk with people. And previous to your take on it, I looked at that kind of small talk as kind of annoying, but the uh, the lens that mm -hmm. you viewed it through as it being um, really a way to make people feel more comfortable really has changed my entire view of that kind of small talk. So I just wanted to, to oh, give you credit nice. for this because I think I think that is very important. But to to talk about the mustache, um, I have not been treated differently, but there is some mm -hmm. sort of uh, something built into the human DNA where when people see a mustache, they have to comment on it. And not only do they have to comment oh, okay. on it, they have to tell you some sort of joke about mustaches. And it's okay. normally either a joke about being a, a 70s porn star or, you know, okay. about being a, being a, being a cop, being a you know, federal agent, something like that. So that's, that's, okay. that's the story there. Well, I'm, I'm glad to I didn't want to berate or demean myself by uh, making a common mustache joke or uh, going, bang, chico, wah, wah. oh, fuck, I just did it. But, like, no, I was wondering, because it was not long ago in Florida when I went to stay with my friend on a farm, um, and he was sporting a mustache, and he said, yeah, it's really interesting. I've, not, I've noticed that around here, like, you know, when I go into the gas station or something like that, if I'm, if I'm queuing, people are much more likely to go, oh, excuse me, sir, if they think they, they cut in the line or someone turns around and they think I'm more likely to be tough or get in a fight with them, even though I'm like, or uh, exactly the same person uh, since I started sporting this mustache. But maybe it's just it doesn't matter if you have the mustache on the outside it's if you have the mustache on the inside maybe he's just behaving a little bit more rugged maybe it's the, the confidence uh, to yeah it's it, it's the mustache the mentality effect. you know when, when you wake up in the morning and you see that mustache in the mirror it just gives you gives you a little more confidence and, and you know people people that grow a mustache you, you got to have a little confidence to uh to sport a mustache you gotta you gotta have something going on you know there's plenty of people that'll grow a beard and then they'll you know they'll shave down to the mustache and they'll, they'll look in the mirror and then they'll think i can't do it i just can't do it then they shave the mustache yeah. off but you gotta have a little, little little bravado to to wear the mustache i think that's very true so um, shall we talk about the pharmaceutical industry now? <laughs> well, I, I, yes, I do want to talk about that. I'm, I'm I'm trying to manage this this delay, so when I stop talking, I'm trying to give you time to interject anything. But yes, let's start off with um, so pharmaceutical companies in general. I think a good place to start is just with general health, um, because you know mm -hmm. I know you personally. Um, at least you used to. I'm not sure if you still do, but you follow a very specific diet. And I don't really want to talk about the specific diet. Um, it's it's different than probably what, what what I follow, and I don't want to argue about that today. But obviously, yeah, the point of me bringing that up is you're very interested in your health, and I'm curious where mm. that interest came from, and um, you know where that passion really came from. Is it a passion? Well, I mean, the thing is, for me, it was kind of of necessity because I had a bunch of intolerances. Uh, food intolerances growing up i've actually since reversed food intolerances like i i couldn't um using naturopathy and natural um fasting juicing um and other like detoxification protocols so whereas before if i had any cow's dairy products except butter or wheat products which which we probably agree are not like the best products for you, especially now. I don't know about the wheat that our grandparents ate or our great grandparents ate, but the stuff that we're getting now is not um, the same and it's sprayed with lots of glyphosate and stuff like that. Um, yeah, those would those would definitely lead to eczema um, and just general sluggishness. Now I can actually get away with eating that stuff. Um, I, I still try and like not make it a big portion of my diet because I don't think it's optimal, but I just goes to show 
that just because you got something doesn't mean that you always have to have that thing. Um, the thing is, when I was growing up, the doctors didn't really know anything at all about the link between certain foods and skin conditions. In fact, it's kind of ridiculous when you consider that the official policy of the AMA, the American Medical Association, for decades or even 100 years was that food, that diet has no effect on health and disease whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas now, you know, we have these studies like, um, what was it? The Institute of Medicine, um, actual causes of death um, in 1993. And then again, around 2003, about 70% of illness is lifestyle related with the biggest, um, with the biggest contributing factors being diet and lack of exercise. And then excessive alcohol, tobacco, and drug consumption coming afterwards. So they admit that 70% of disease is lifestyle related. I'd say it's probably in the 90s, actually, if you ask me. Um, but no one did. Uh, so um, very, even if you've got a genetic predisposition or whatever, you know, it's it's your, your lifestyle will will bring that out or not and i think actually a lot of the time what's put down to genetics is people inherit the same habits from their family not just eating habits but habits of handling emotional disturbances and psychological disturbances deal the same with deal with things the same way that their parents did get the same diseases that their parents got so um they admit this and yet a lot and yet they still continue to prioritize giving symptom suppressive um, compounds to people which make their symptoms go away while the patient gets sicker. So um, this has been likened to having a warning light come up in your car and someone goes and snips the wire and the warning light's not showing anymore. And you think, oh, I'm getting better. The wonders of modern medicine. No, you're not. As far as the disease is concerned, you're getting worse. And you've just added a bunch of toxic compounds into your body, which are going to have to be filtered through the livers and kidneys and reduce the functionality of the system. So obviously my doctors didn't teach me any of this stuff. Um, I had to find it out for myself. Um, on that point, you know, there's no nutritional elements in a pharmaceutical drug. There's no minerals. There's no vitamins. There's no amino acids. There's no... Um, oxygen there's no there's nothing that would help you build your tissues more healthy we're replacing ourselves all the time right the question is are they getting what they need to produce a generation of cells that are more healthy and less sick than the last are they um or, or are your as the cellular condition of your body degenerating so while you can use a pharmaceutical drug to comfort the patient while you enact other protocols to help bring them to health, whether like I'm a really big fan of detox protocols, I've benefited from them immensely. I've uh, reversed skin conditions, I've reversed low energy, um, <laughs> um, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, moods improve my moods. Then there's like the nutritional element, emotional and psychological health. And if you believe in it, you know, the energetic flow through your body in some ancient cultures mm -hmm. and the Chinese, Japanese believe in chi or ki. And in India, they believe in prana, which is more or less the same concept. Um, to, um, that, that your body has an energetic flow to it as well. So these are kind of like, I would say I got into this first of necessity, then when you add to that, uh, becoming a libertarian and learning economics, um, the economic aspects of healthcare and why healthcare is so expensive when really, you know, for four trillion a year, the USA is spending on healthcare, when if they had a healthcare system to, that's similar to the one they had in Singapore, you know, they might only be spending $1 trillion a year. $3 trillion, a, saving $3 trillion a year is a lot. That's enough to end poverty and homelessness in the USA. It's enough to balance the budget um, and give everyone a tax cut on top of that. Um, add to that. And, and then, you know, the whole COVID bullshit. Um, by this point, I was trying to think with my mind and my unique combination of experiences having done things that almost never no one has done like you know fasted for three weeks or spent over six months on yoga retreats and um 
this seemed to be the best use of my brain. So mm-hmm. that's a long answer to a short question. But the but the but but the good thing is I answered two or three questions that you didn't ask as well. Exactly, and th- and that's why I love having you on the show because uh, th- there's less less lifting, left less work for uh, for me to do here. But um, you you just mentioned there at the end, kind of dropped so in that you fasted. To say something about like with that mustache, I think you like, like to go left. Yeah, sorry, go on. You you mentioned there that um, you fasted for three weeks before. I, I that's 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 a, a long time to uh, to fast. I, I'm on. I'm I'm not doing a true fast right now, but a restricted yeah. um, three day fast, very low caloric intake. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you were talking about there before mm-hmm. about sort of the power of restriction, sort of, sort of the power of you know um, consuming less and cleansing your body out, yeah. your cells going through uh, a trophic atrophy um incredibly important to get a uh you know really really a reset in that area but to talk about the you know some of the topics in this book um actually before we get to that i I do have a a specific question so when did you decide to write this book and was it spurred on because of covid because it sounds like you were already pretty skeptical of pharmaceutical companies and uh the corruption behind them um, prior to COVID, but what yeah. really spurred on Damn, writing the book? I should have written this stuff. I, I should have like written about this years ago because then I would have been completely fixed to like take advantage of COVID and become a celebrity. What the fuck have I done with my life? Um, but like, yeah, I guess I got back to Scotland after eighteen months away. I'd, I'd written, I ghostwritten a whole bunch of articles for a naturopath who's dead now, based on his um previous video and audio output and he was my he was one of my teachers so I knew a lot about that um especially the detoxification element I I I was asked to contribute an essay to a book which I did and as soon as I finished it I went back to previous stuff that I'd written on the healthcare the economics of healthcare and I started working on it and I instantly knew that this was meant what I was meant to be doing with my life. It was like so clear that this was what I was meant to be working on. I had no doubt. I thought that I would have more out sooner. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in my Substack. I'm about to put out a longer book, but even the longer book that I'm putting out is like only a small percentage of the material that I've collected on it. Um, there's a lot of stuff from a more economics and um, healthcare reform policy perspective, um, how we fix bad science and medicine, like institutional change stuff. So I'm thinking maybe it'll be a series of short books um, if it's if it continues to be interesting. And then maybe who knows one day I'll. I will have written the series of short books and I'll go, let's turn this into the massive tome it was originally intended to be and bring them all together in one place. We'll see. I'm just going to follow the tide. But yeah, I mean, I suppose the the COVID thing was a big part of it. It was like, um, this is like critical. It's not trivial. I'll tell you why COVID, the COVID thing really it really influenced it. It wasn't necessarily that it made me think I needed to talk about health. What what it did was it disillusioned me of the belief that there's a whole bunch of people out there just waiting to get the right information and then they'll change their mind and become libertarians or uh or I didn't I already didn't think that. I'd already been disillusioned of that, but it just made it very clear to me that most people were not interested in the truth and were not interested in the kind of policy changes that we wanted. So that meant if I want to be effective in life, which I do, we only have a short time on this planet, um, I needed to cover something that didn't depend upon systemic change, but was relevant to the individual reading it. So for that reason, 
this was perfect because people can read this and they can change their own habits and become more healthy and um, avoid some landmines. But if enough people read it, you know, that changes their their community, that changes their outlook. And 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 if it goes on from there, if enough people read it, it would necess it would necessitate policy change. So I don't shy away from talking about how the system um, promotes ill health, and how mm -hmm. and there are suggestions of policy changes in my work. I cover examples of programs that they ran which reduced the rate of diabetes and heart disease amongst those people on those programs and how the hospitals then went ahead and shut those programs down because they were losing money on, they were losing money when they prevented disease, right? So I talk about that stuff, but it's not primarily a libertarian text, even though it's got that stuff. It's more like about bad science and medicine and misconceptions about the history of medicine, what medicine has done for us. Um, so it's it's more like about setting the records straight. So yeah, I feel like that's what made me well suited to it because I can come to it from several angles. Yeah, well, that that's interesting. Um, so uh, at least you probably talked about it several times in the book, but the one example that um, I did read of it was I think there was a, a study you cited from uh, from Duke Duke Medical where they were. Right. Um, um, it was with uh, people suffering from congestive heart failure and they were able to reduce right. the rates just by like following up and, um, you know, being more yeah. engaged and, and giving them, you know, um, general, you know, healthy habits and, uh, and diet changes and reduction mm -hmm. happened, but they, but, but they threw it out because it, it wasn't making them money, which I think brings about an interesting question here. I mean, obviously the, the greater healthcare system is, is, you know, so cronyized and we have the, uh, you know, health insurance cartels that uh, that that run everything and, and drive prices up, but there is an aspect to this where, um, you know, I, th I think libertarians can fall in a trap where we say, um, well, you know, it's it's capitalism. You know, we, we just need to let the uh, let the market fix things, and you know, whatever makes money will will you know will end up winning in the end. But um, you know, farmers obviously, you know. The uh, the cards are stacked in favor of these pharmaceutical companies via legislation and uh, and things of that nature, but um, I think the the aspect that I'm more starting to realize more is you know just libertarianism alone, capitalism alone, really really isn't enough. There needs to be some some ethics behind it mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in, in order to to really drive policy. Right. Well, I mean, what you have is a situation where the institutions are all, all their income comes from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, not all of it, obviously. A huge percentage, um, I've got facts on this in the ebook where the, there was a, there was, a, the, the idea was maybe you could, you could choose a less uh, cynical approach and think maybe it was well intentioned. The idea was like, well, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies are benefiting from having their drugs approved, so they should have to pay for the approval process. But that made that created a situation where 75% of the budget for the drug approval process was coming from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, mm. Then you have these like continuing medical education seminars and conferences, which doctors are obliged to attend. I've got um, a close friend here. Sorry, <laughs> no worries. Speak of the devil. We've got a close friend here in Mexico City who's a doctor, and she was mm -hmm. like, "I never go to conferences that aren't paid for by pharma. Why would they? I mean, and also when you're going through that like ten-year process, seventy, eight, seventy to a hundred hour weeks, not making that much money when you're on residency." They put you through 10 years of this stuff. Oh, why shouldn't I go away for a weekend with the family and like go to a medical conference and hobnob with other doctors and hear what's going on? I'm not an idiot. I know that Pfizer is uh, funding it. That's not going to make me prescribe any differently. Well, the data says that it does make you prescribe differently. There's very clear data showing that 
after doctors go to these conferences, they prescribe the drugs that are um, advocated by whoever's funding the conference. So we could go into the medical, the university, the textbooks are written by pharmaceutical companies. Um, well, if, if I so could just chime in, if yeah. I could just chime in, chime in there quickly. Um, it, that's I've heard that before. And my wife used to work in the restaurant industry, the, the high end restaurant industry. And, you know, they would have these nights like like you're talking about where they run out of room and a bunch of doctors come in a, and a pharmaceutical salesman comes in and gives a presentation. And, you know, she would hear the you know the doctors talking and, and get to know some of them. And they were blatantly just there for a free night out and, and, and drinks and, and all that stuff. Right. But I, of, of, course, of course, either. Um, of course, that is going to affect their decision making, whether they are cognizant of, of it or not, because they had experiences, they felt a certain way and subconsciously mm. um, it, it's, it's going to affect them. And it's interesting, like the, the tax code for for salespeople, you know, has been changed where you're not allowed to just extravagantly, you know, spend on um, individuals in order to really, really buy sales. But it seems like the pharmaceutical industry really that doesn't apply to them i don't know i'm not really familiar with the tax code how it's how it's written but it seems like they have a uh they, little they wiggle have, room there they have tried to do away with the worst successes of it but i mean it, it's it's not really possible because with in that industry education is the money has to come from somewhere right and who where does the money come from it's buying drugs, right? It's the government mm -hmm. paying for drugs, right? And I should say at this point, like when it comes to like, if you've got a laceration, a cut, uh, you need reconstructive surgery, emergent, what they call emergency medicine surgery, they're miracle workers, right? But the pharmaceutical company is co-opting the success of emergency medicine to go, wow, the wonders of modern medicine. Pharmaceutical medicine is not the same as surgery, right? So the thing is, there is no rational function for a pharma rep, zero. It should not exist on a free market because what patients want is the best medication with the least side effects at the best price. It is the function of a pharma rep to convince a doctor to prescribe their medication regardless of whether it's the best for a certain treat, uh, for a certain indication or not, it's really important to understand this. These people are on six-figure salaries with ten thousand dollars a month expense account. Use it or lose it, and if they don't use it to schmooze doctors and try and talk them round, their company will be breathing down their neck, going, "Why aren't you spending this money? Why aren't you taking people out? Why aren't you convincing them to buy drugs to to prescribe our drugs?" Right. And they and they provide zero beneficial function to the functioning of medicine. So all of the money that they're getting is then recuperated somehow in drug sales, which means you, me, or hopefully not you and me, whoever is receiving drugs is paying more for the drugs to pay the pharma rep to propagandize the doctor. So if you want to talk about capitalism, this is definitely crony capitalism, corporatism, but it's got nothing to do with free market capitalism. Half, mm -hmm. of, half of healthcare spending in the USA is conducted by the government. Given the choice, would you and I choose to pay the inflated salaries of pharma reps so that they can fudge the evidence and make it harder for us to get the best treatment at the best price. I don't think so. That inflates the cost of drugs. And then Medicare, Medicaid, the insurance companies, rather than police the pharmaceutical industry, collude with the pharmaceutical industry to an extent that I still don't fully understand. You would think, I mean, after all this research, it's not just the last two years. I mean, I've been in and out of researching this stuff since I would say my late teens, because um, that's when I had that's when I started to discover um, you know naturopathy and different ways of trying to reverse um, conditions I had. So you would think that the incentive of the insurance companies 
is to provide be competitive. That means provide cheap premiums. And that means they'd go, no, that drug's too expensive. We're not letting you get that. And partly they're worried about being sued. Another thing is they don't want chronically ill patients. So they've got actually an incentive to, to provide poor care in certain areas. Like, you know, we don't want someone who has Crohn's. So we'll just make sure that our provision mm -hmm. for Crohn's is really crap, right? And those people are not uh, stupid. They'll like shop around and go, yeah, that insurance company isn't very good for Crohn's. Maybe we should go with someone else, right? So there's there's lots of weird incentives in this um, in, in the system. And, you know, one of the, if you don't know at home, one of the reasons why employers pay for your health insurance is because during the war, um, they made it. The government made it illegal to offer higher wages. They put a wage freeze, so people who wanted to attract good employees would start offering health insurance. And then, basically, you will not get taxed on your health insurance, uh, but you will get, uh, 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 but you will get taxed on take a take home pay. So there's an there's a this is why it's not free market capitalism. There's all sorts mm -hmm. of things written into the tax code that encourage this like crony capitalist takeover of the health of the healthcare system. Yeah, even with uh, HSAs, um, health mm -hmm. saving saving accounts, and uh, there's also FSAs, flexible spending accounts, where you can use tax free dollars in order to to spend on. Um, you know, prescriptions, doctors' visits, all that type of stuff. Um, which you know, from someone who's trying to save money and have less money taxed um, to an individual to a family, that's a good thing. I I use an HSA myself as much as possible, but just like you pointed out there, on the whole, that's going to end up just you know, driving more more money into those uh, pharmaceutical coffers. Right. And you did mention, uh, a moment ago there about pharmaceutical ads, and I have to take a minute to show you this shirt that we have in our lines of Liberty store, which this is made up off of a, uh, a saying I said during a podcast, it's kind of small, but the shirt says TV is filler um, for pharmaceutical mm -hmm. ads. Um, you know, the thought there being when you're, when you're watching your Fox news, your CNN, your sporting events, whatever it is. And um, you get a, an ad for Viagra, an ad for an ADHD medication, an ad for something else. Um, that fill up the the time um, in, in between these uh, TV shows, and the TV show really sort of just seems like it's there just to just to fill the time. But I heard you in a different interview um, give an interesting take on this um, dynamic, which I really hadn't thought of it this way. So if you could, if you could yeah. share that, thank you so much for introducing that, John. Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing because, you know, we are not allowed in the UK to advertise, to have pharma ads on the TV. And that's true of almost every nation in the world except for America and New Zealand. Now, when I came to America, uh, end of 2020, and I was shocked at how many pharma ads were on the television. And I naively thought they were trying to sell drugs. But people joke a lot of the mm -hmm. time when you, when they go because blah 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 and sun death you're like is this really <laughs> yes. a pharma ad like i just heard all the things that this drug might cause it turns out it turns out that what they are doing is not just um advertising drugs what they're doing is buying favorable coverage during the evening news 18 out of 22 pharma ads if i got the number right something like that um, 18 out of 22 ads are farm ads. You can count yourself. What this means is that pharma are the biggest pairs of airtime, pairs for airtime during the news. So that means the news are going to be reluctant to report on pharma scandals. Now, as I've said before, there are over 500 drug withdrawals a year in the USA. Maybe it was the wrong dosage on the bottle. Maybe uh, there was a, who knows, all sorts of things. Every day, every day there's a drug withdrawal. So if they wanted to, 
they could create a big pharma scandal every single day of the week. But they don't. And they won't because pharma are paying the most for airtime. And when I say that pharma are the paying the more the most for airtime, it's again, it's it's Medicaid, it's Medicare, it's private insurance, it's you and I, it's it's we are actually paying for pharma to buy off the news so that the news does not report on the evil that pharma do. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I've seen examples of uh pharmaceutical company being sued for off-label advertising, illegal advertising of a drug for an indication that not only is it not proven to improve outcomes for, so you're giving this drug to someone that it's not going to improve their outcomes, in the company's own studies, they showed that people on this drug with this condition did worse than people who didn't go on the drug. But they Mm. cherry-picked a couple of studies which made it look favorable, even though it wasn't representative of the data. The drug company then got taken to court and sued for, for illegal advertising of that drug uh, to doctors. And then the thing is, doctors don't know that the court case ever happened. And so they continue to prescribe that drug off-label for that indication. Why don't they know? Well, no one told them in their medical education seminar, which was paid for by pharma. No one told them on the news, which was paid for by pharma. And, you know, the, 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 bodies you know sorry i'm forgetting the name not public health bodies but you know consumer advocacy groups you know you've Mm -hmm. got the you've got the american heart foundation the american cancer society no one in these medical societies um advise the doctor either because these medical societies are also bought off by by pharma the american cancer society is a perfect example there's tons and tons of exact of way all the American Cancer Society are interested in doing is encouraging doctors to screen more and um, advising them on what treat and, and get them to treat cancer with radiation, chemo, and surgery. They're not at all interested in advising doctors in the prevention of cancer. They are a shell for the cancer industry. And the same goes for the um, American mm-hmm. Diabetes Association. The same goes for all because. See if any of these associations were impartial. Why wouldn't the pharmaceutical agency uh, companies start saying, oh, we can fund you. We can help you um, improve your operations. Let us put some money behind you, you know, so that you can you can advise people better and help them. And then one by one, the people on the board of those organizations are replaced by people in the industry. So these these organizations can start off impartial, and if they, as the moment they get any clout, the money starts to show up, and the money where's the money coming from? Well, I say it's coming from the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry, but it's actually coming from you and I because you and I are paying for our taxes for Medicare and Medicaid. You're mandated to pay for health insurance, uh, and then on top of that, some people are just buying drugs over the counter at inflated prices to buy off all of these organizations. Yeah. You know, I, I think when it comes to, you know, like the American cancer association and uh, associations like that, um, when you look at how cancer is treated, sure. We've come a long way um, from a, uh, you know, from an acute standpoint on treating cancer and being able to, um provide for a, a a better outlook for most types of cancer. But one of the most ridiculous things is, and this still happens today, which is absurd, when someone has cancer and they're in the hospital, they don't even recommend that they change their diet. You know, if somebody asked you, oh, what should I eat differently now that I have cancer? No, 99% ridiculous. of doctors would say, oh, no, you can just eat whatever you want. Have some pie, have some cake. Doesn't matter um, when, when it's 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 been it's proven in studies that 
you know, these uh, highly processed foods and sugars and, and this are feeding the cancer. Cancer is a metabolic disorder. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, go ahead. Disease, right. Right, exactly. And you've got this, you've got this stone talk about cancer risk reduction. I mean, the fact that you can go into a hospital and come out more and you typically come out more malnourished than you went in, that alone should um, set off alarms. I mean, what the fuck? That, even if you're a complete normie, you're not skeptical about the pharmaceutical industry, surely you think you shouldn't come, be coming out of the hospital more malnourished than you went in. So when you look at this, um, the, the ACS um, accepts huge sums of money from fast food manufacturers, including Wendy's and McDonald's, you know, um, they're accepting funds from the petrochemical company, Amgen, cosmetics company. Um, you know, everything, all these chemical, like, and then there's the wires. I'm worried that it might be true, you know. Um, and then there's also Big Pharma, of course. So these um, conflicts of interest were well documented extensively in the T. Colin Campbell book Whole, um, which uh, which advocates a whole food a whole foods diet, not all this processed crap. Um, and then and then there was a, a big book written about them called National Cancer Institute and American Cancer Society: Criminal Indifference to Cancer Prevention and Conflicts of Interest. So this is like been well documented but nothing changes it's like with psychiatry you know the book anatomy of the epidemic of an epidemic comes out i don't know 11 years ago or something like that debunking using mainstream studies debunking tech talk tech talk time keeps ticking nothing changes and i, I think when my book my next book comes out it's called uh Big Pharma, guess it quacks like a duck. Because, um, you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, I guess it's a duck. Um, I, I, I guess uh, maybe it will kind of fulfill the same function for pharmaceutical medicine as anatomy of a de an epidemic did for psychiatric medication. But um, we'll, I guess we'll see. So to, to pivot here and to talk about the V word vaccines, and, and hopefully this podcast doesn't get demonetized for just mentioning that word. But um, for me personally, um, the entire Lollipops, COVID vaccine, yeah, lollipops, the, the entire COVID uh, lollipop situation that, uh, that occurred really opened my eyes to looking at the whole landscape of vaccines as a whole. Um, you know, I'm someone that, you know, as a kid growing up, I, I was fully vaccinated with all the vaccines, which for someone um, my age, I'm 40 years old, that's not nearly as many vaccines as someone who is, say, you know, 10 years old would mm -hmm. have today in their lifetime. It's They might have three times or maybe more vaccines mm -hmm. than uh, than me. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, in writing this book and um, in uh, r really researching vaccines what have you learned about you know common vaccines that you really most people just kind of don't even think about like like polio and uh whooping cough and measles and, and things like that thank you right i don't cover the vaccine issue in great detail apart from to say that the that that the american academy of pediatrics wrote in 2000 in their own journal Vaccination does not account for the impressive declines in mortality, um, witness, meaning what was witnessed in the 20th century, but that in fact, quote, nearly 90% of the decline in infectious disease mortality among US children occurred before 1940, end quote. 1940 is long before most antibiotics and vaccines were invented. So I say in my book, are you saying that the American Academy of Pediatrics are just a bunch of crazy anti-vaxxers okay so they admit they admit that um these diseases were not reversed by these by vaccines 
what I would say is something like polio, um, which reached epidemic proportions in the early 1900s. Now, incidents of it were all way down by the 1950s, and they continued to fall until 1955 when the Jonas Salk vaccine that's credited with ending polio was introduced. So, so this is just what the official, again, I just say, look, don't blame me. I'm just saying what the official sources say. Tuberculosis was of widespread public concern in the 19th and early 20th century. And incidents of that disease had already plummeted by 1945 and streptomycin, the antibiotic credited with stamping it out, was introduced in 1946. So vaccinations, stamping out um, conditions like pneumonia, whooping cough and measles is threadbare on the grounds that countries didn't get them for years because they were too poor. They saw a similar rate of decline in these diseases as the countries that got them mm -hmm. early. So, you know, little little of the world had even seen the smallpox vaccine by the time it was discernible that eruptions of smallpox were on the out. And then there's a whole bunch of other conditions like scurvy, rickets, and cholera that had no mainstream medical treatments at all, but they all declined too, just like those other diseases. So that's like the case for, we're talking about what we always told, safe and effective. Effective, well, this brings into question, well, I mean, we really know, we know what led to the 20th century. They didn't have clean water running through taps. They didn't have hygiene, they didn't have soap, they didn't have horse-drawn carts going through the streets, pooping everywhere. They stayed several to a room. Um, they didn't have sanitary sewage systems. So in short, the plumber did more to rid us of disease than modern medicine did. Okay, so that's... And, and on that point, you know, in New York in the early 1900s, all of the mosquitoes would just come over to New Jersey, which was a swamp, and infect people with, with diseases every um, every summer. But then, you know, they literally drained the swamp, and lo and behold, people stopped getting um, yellow fever and malaria and whatever, or those symptoms which are associated with those diseases. As for the, are, are they safe? Okay. What I tell people is, there's over 800,000 completely unvaccinated people in the USA. All you would have to do is do a comparative study of the long-term health outcomes of vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. Take 10, 20, 30,000 of those people that are unvaccinated and compare, have they got the same amount of colitis? Have they got the same amount of ME, chronic fatigue, diabetes? Have they got more? Are they a hotbed of disease? Compare their long-term health outcomes to vaccinated populations and um, age adjust it. This is a very easy study to do. The CDC have been asked to do this study repeatedly and they steadfastly refuse to do the study. Wherever this study has done, has been done, Dr. James Lyons-Wheeler and Dr. Paul Thomas conducted a study of this sort a few years ago. Dr. Paul Thomas was a pediatrician and the day after the study was published, had his license revoked and had to go to court wow. to get it back. They found an excuse. The Oregon Medical Board found an excuse to revoke his license the day after the study was published. That had nothing to do with the study, of course. It was just, um, okay. So there, there was also the Anthony Mawson study a few years ago that did the same. Uh, and he, he was a university professor and he was run out of the university for publishing. So this has a cooling effect where no one wants to touch this. Um, I've done Dr. Paul Thomas' show and I'm uh, collaborating with Dr. Lyons-Wheeler uh, on a 
on a course on the economics of healthcare reform, which if anyone is interested in joining, that starts in January. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link for that in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, so this is kind of cool because it's like you like cover these people and their topics uh, and you're like, wow, they're really great. And then a few years later, you're collaborating with them. And it just, just goes to show like, um, like your life's what you make it. So mm-hmm. um, what I would say is I'm not saying it. I'm not saying that um, that vaccines weren't responsible for the eradication of disease. The American Academy of Pediatrics are. I'm not saying that um, vaccines are unsafe. I'm saying go do the research. Let's see it. Let's prove it to us. Just it's so easy to do. Demonstrate that we're a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists. Do the study. And uh, that's about all I've got to say about lollipops. Yeah. Well, well, changing the conversation from lollipops to uh, to the FDA and uh, and what they've done to our to our food. Um, just I want to get your opinion on on something. I, I did an episode on this recently, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with um, the fact that the FDA, since I believe it's 1998, in the United States, has been spraying um, all non-organic grains with folic acid. Um, oh, wow. Many okay. other countries are doing the same thing. The idea behind that is that this folic acid for pregnant women, um, it's to prevent neurological birth defects. And it's the type of neurological birth yeah. defect where in order for it to, to work, it needs to, you need to have your levels of, uh, mm-hmm. of folate up prior to getting pregnant and in the very early stages. So, um, and they don't trust pregnant women um, to supplement on their own, but it turns out that this synthetic folic acid, um, about 60% of the people out there have a gene mutation where they can't methylate it. They can't process it. They can't use it. So it builds up in the bloodstream, causes all kinds of issues, cardiovascular strokes, uh, mood disorders, ADHD, autism. Um, this is all being studied right now. But if you go to the CDC's website, it says that everyone can process folic acid. None of this, none of this is happening. There's no evidence to the contrary. And uh, it's just so interesting when you look at how this all ties together with how our right. food's been um, poisoned and how our ph- pharmaceutical companies are are right there to to treat the symptoms of our food being poisoned. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get your, I don't know if, if you're familiar right. with that, but just your thoughts yeah, generally exactly. on the, the ties no, no, between that. Yeah, I've got two things to say about that. The first one is it's really freaking rich, the FDA um, spraying grains with folic acid. Because when, going back to when this was discovered, um, that folic acid can, it reduce the risk of neural tube defects. The FDA refused to allow manufacturers to make more effective in reducing the risk of neural tube defects in a lower amount in common food form. So approximately 10,000 American babies were born with deformities unnecessarily as a consequence of the FDA not allowing um, folic acid manufacturers to, to to tell people who it might benefit from. But, you know, in, mm-hmm. in yoga philosophy, they say, um, in Ayurveda, they say, every plant that you see in nature may have some medical benefit for some indication. That doesn't mean that when you go through the forest, you start. It's not one size fits all. You can't spray the food with folic acid and expect to get the benefit. What you want is to educate people appropriately who this mm-hmm. might be beneficial for and allow them to take it. Anything that might be uh, of nutritional value to you, John, might be of nutritional detriment to me and vice versa. 
you know, our diets are different. Mm -hmm. Yours might suit your body better and mine might suit my body better. So there's, there, there, isn't, there isn't a one size fits all. The second thing is this is just an example of if we actually had a health insurance uh, model that made any sense at all, what should the health insurance companies be doing? They should be trying to keep their costs down. That means if people, if, if they're losing money because we're getting sick, basically the health insurance companies should be suing Monsanto. The health insurance companies should be getting together to do some studies to demonstrate the harm of glyphosate mm -hmm. on the human body. And then they're going to go to Monsanto and the other food manufacturers and saying, look, you're making our clients sick. We're having to pay out millions billions of dollars a year treating people for preventative illnesses that are being caused by you poisoning them. That means we're going to take you to court and you're going to have to pay us to pay for the treatment of their diseases, right? Then all of a sudden, Monsanto will stop spraying everything with, with glyphosate and this insanity will stop. Unfortunately, as the games board set up at the moment, they're all on one side and it's not yours. That no, that's a really interesting takeaway. On it, it really exposes that we don't have health insurance companies. They're not insurance companies. They're uh, mm -hmm. they're they're cartels that are yeah. extorting um, the people who are members and who are paying for the so-called insurance. But that's that's a really good takeaway there. I, um, Anthony, we are. I've been reading to write an article called "Health Insurers Should Sue Monsanto for Like a Year," but I'm just not uh, prioritized it yet. You should. This should be the motivation to do it. Now, I'll, I'll share the shit out of that article. So, so write it, um, Anthony. We're, we're we're out of time here today. So, give the people your links, everything that you're working on, the link to uh, the book Seven Big Pharma Myths Debunked. Yeah. Give that again, and, and anything else you got. Well, I've got two links to share. Well, three, including the one for the healthcare economics course. And um, if you go to sevenpharmamyths.com and download your free ebook then i guess i'll add you to my Substack, and you can stay subscribed or you can unsubscribe if you want i usually put an article out about once a week the other thing is if you go if you are a freedom warrior under assault in an insane world trying to thrive and meet your best as you mentioned in the early uh, bio, which I interrupted you. I'm actually a psychotherapist and a coach, and I've been working with primarily people who are members of the freedom movement for the last 10 years or more. Um, and I feel like I'm getting like so into serving our community because at this point in time, it's like we need to be our best so that we can do battle with evil. And we also want to show ourselves as to be shining examples. So if you've got, if you've got like, emotional or psychological blocks to reaching your potential or maybe you think you're actually doing pretty well but um you could do with something developmental be yourself and love it.com is a site to go to to book a discovery call with me and find out if i would be a good match for helping you so thanks very much for having me on your show it's good to catch up with you after a few years and um i'm sure we'll do this again sometime also i really liked it because it covered a bunch of stuff that either isn't covered in the book or the book there's a bunch of stuff in the book that we didn't cover today so i, I really enjoyed doing that it means that all of these shows aren't the same awesome awesome trying to make it uh make it unique i know you've been making the uh the podcast round so thank you for giving your time today and and sharing with my audience anthony thank you john all right, guys, that is a wrap for today's show with Anthony Samaroff. I will link to everything that we talked about on the show notes page. You can find it at lionsofliberty.com. Be sure to check out his book, Seven Big Pharma Myths, um, for you know more information on everything we talked about today and information on things that we didn't even get to. Um, it's a very rich book, short book, quick read, but you'll get a lot of information from reading it, so highly recommend it. Um, like I said, at the top of the show, um, we're recording this on December 20th for you listening. Now it's the new year. So hopefully you're looking forward to this new year and setting some goals health wise, um, setting some, uh, um, really a vision for 
where you want to see yourself in 2024 and beyond from a health standpoint, from a finance standpoint, from a faith standpoint, um, all of the above. And those are things that I will be covering this year once again in detail with great guests like Anthony um, this year on Finding Freedom. So be sure to subscribe. And if uh, if you like what we're doing, join the pride at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or at lionsofliberty.locals.com. With all that being said, hopefully everyone is having a great, uh, hopefully you had a great new year and you have a great week. I'll see y'all next week. And in the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.